According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Taking just a moment to remember to turn my phone off. Sunday, I had it on the whole day. Playing with fire, you know. (laughs) Fortunately, no one called. I didn't intend to leave it on all day. It was just one of those accidental deals. Well, join me one more time, if you would, in Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23, I believe we will conclude this episode today. Episode 10 in the last uh, Jesus' final week of work at Jerusalem and his final public sermon. He will have additional messages, including the Mount Olivet Discourse, including the Upper Room Discourse. But this is the final public message, the final uh, word with uh, hostile unbelievers in attendance. As we've been studying it, it's a message full of woes, seven of them. Or 8, if you believe that verse 14 belongs in this uh, chapter. I don't believe verse 14 belongs in the record here in Matthew. Uh, But seven woes that are described here. Seven woes to the scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Seven woes in which the application is made that God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so there's a tremendous amount of study that goes into this. We're approaching the end of the chapter, and I want to bring together some of the, the last things that uh, that we have to look at. But before we do, of course, we want to start with prayer. Make sure that we are filled with the Holy Spirit, that distractions are set aside, that we have humility to receive the Word implanted. Shall we, shall we pray? Almighty Father, we thank You for this day and for the truth of Your Word. And Father, as always, this is our blessing. We haven't earned it, haven't deserved it. Who are we? that we should study Your truth, Father, that You should make Your mind known to each one of us and reveal Yourself to us. Father, it's it's humbling. And so, Father, we want to acknowledge Your glory and Your grace as we've come together to study Your truth. We pray that it would not be hampered in any way by limitations, human limitations, on the part of the speaker or on the part of any hearer. Father, that uh, we thank You for the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit who takes the Word of God and, and makes it clear to each one of us. So, Father, we thank you for this opportunity today. Hedge us about, protect us, uh, hinder anyone that would want to come in here and bring us to harm, Father, or stop what we're doing. And, uh, Father, minister to us today the truth of your word. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. All righty. We are in the seventh and final point of study that uh, we're going to glean out of this entire outline. So, I failed to... Jot down the slide number. We'll just guess. Nope. There it is. Jesus follows the seven woes with a personal prophecy and a lament. The personal prophecy relates to the destruction of Jerusalem in verses 34 through 36. And then the lament follows that in verses 37 through 39. Jerusalem, Jerusalem who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling.
willing. And it's really, it's a lament because of how unnecessary it is. He has a plan. He has a design for their deliverance, for their salvation, for their exaltation. But they, uh, they have their own will. And whenever we say, uh, our will, not yours be done, uh, we are in defiance of God's perfect plan for our life. And the consequences then are uh, lamentable, we should say. But before we get to the lament, uh, we need to look at the prophecy in verses 34 through 36. Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. All right, so under subpoint A, we break down the prophecy, and then under subpoint B, we will break down the lament. Subpoint A, this prophecy is personal because Jesus promises to personally send these divine messengers. This is actually quite unique of all the messages that Jesus delivers. The normal routine is that it's the Father who sent Him. It's the Father who is going to do something. It's the Father who is saying something. It's the Father who has promised something. But in this message, it is actually the Son who is the one who is sending these messengers. And, uh, of course, as a foreshadowing of the coming church age, uh, a, a mystery that's still unrevealed at the point of time, Christ is speaking this, uh, he can't come right out and say that, you know, as the head of the church, as the apostle and high priest of our confession, I will be sending you church age saints in the midst of your revoked uh, stewardship. He doesn't go into all that detail, but we understand with our hindsight that that's exactly the reality of what's happening here. Uh, the messengers Israel is going to have are going to be church age saints in the new stewardship of the dispensation of the church. And Israel will be spoken to for the first time since they had their stewardship granted unto them way back with the call of Abraham. So it is uh, an interesting transition. And we've got to be cautious as we uh, as we try to understand this transition. Prophets, wise men and scribes uses terminology that his immediate audience would relate to. Remember who he's speaking to here, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And so he uses terminology that they would relate to, terminology consistent with the Old Testament. And in a context that alludes to how the Old Testament comes to a close with the destruction of the first temple. And we took the time last week. I won't, well, yeah, let's very quickly, let's look at this again. Second Chronicles 36, just so that we can see the tone of this. And we can see, we can again fix in our mind the parallel between uh, Second Chronicles and Matthew 23. All right. So First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, chapter 36. Now remember, Second Chronicles may not seem like it in your Bible, but Second Chronicles is the end of the Old Testament in a lot of ways. We want to understand how the Old Testament was compiled together with, the, with the, the Torah, the law, the prophets, and the writings and the divisions of the Old Testament as, as it was arranged at this time. And so the writings uh, conclude here with 
Second uh, Chronicles. We might think that, well, isn't, isn't Malachi the last of the Old Testament, right? Well, he's the final prophet. And Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi were the final of the three, the final of the twelve, the final of the prophets. But as they structured their, their Old Testament, their Tanakh, their Bible, it was the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim, the, the law, the prophets, and the writings. And so, Whereas we would say Genesis to Revelation today, they would say Genesis to Chronicles. You understand? And so that's, by the way, also going to be featured in this, uh, the recognition here that all the martyrs from Abel to Zechariah uh, also covers that same ground. Abel and his martyrdom described in uh, Genesis and then Zechariah and his martyrdom described in Chronicles. So it's another way to go A to Z. It's another way to go, you know, Abel to Zechariah, A to Z, Genesis to Chronicles. It's a way of saying the canon of Scripture as it existed during the life of Christ. Remember, there was no New Testament written yet when Jesus is, uh, is ministering. So in Second Chronicles 36, we notice verses 15 through 19. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his word and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people until there was no remedy. You know, at this point, you're already beyond the or else stage. You're already past that opportunity. The, the, the door for repentance has closed. And the only, the only uh, message now that's coming is one of destruction. And so therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who slew their young men with a sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or infirm. He gave them all into his hand. All the articles of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the, of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his officers, he brought them all to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all its fortified buildings with fire, and destroyed all its valuable articles. And so this is the Old Testament passage whereby the allusion from this, that is not a direct quotation, you know what an allusion is, right? Not illusion where you're imagining things, allusion, okay? It's, it's not a full quote, but it does reference back. It does point back in, in usually a broad theme, an idea, sometimes with a similarity of language. And that's what we have here. And uh, that passage is brought into this passage when the Lord is saying, I'm sending you prophets, wise men, and messengers. You're going to mock them. You're going to abuse them. Some of them you're going to crucify. And your destruction is on the way. And it's going to be Jerusalem and the temple destroyed all over again. Okay, So just like when Solomon's temple was on the verge of destruction where there was nothing else to do about it, now Herod's temple is on the verge of destruction with nothing else to do about it. They're past the point of or else. They have rejected their Messiah. And this temple is doomed. All right? There will be no repentance to save this temple. So... We have uh, important considerations there. There was a previous message where uh, parallel to this, not taught in Jerusalem, not taught with the same audience in view. And uh, I gave you more points of study of that earlier in main point four of this outline. Uh, But it does go back to Luke chapter 11, verses 37 through 54. 
And specifically in verse 49, he does use the term apostle in that venue. Luke 11:49. And uh, although he does not use the language of apostle here, he did back when he delivered this sermon or this message in the Perean ministry. Luke 11:49. For this reason also the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill, and some of them they will persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. This generation. That is the one that's crucifying the Christ. The one that's, and we'll talk about this generation here in a moment. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the house of God. Yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. All right, so this is a previous episode. This is not during the immediate context of the Passion Week. This is not in the, uh, in the scope of what he's dealing with here. Because what he's dealing with here is, the, is the, uh, the, the religious leaders in the temple itself. You understand? So um, we could explore a little bit more as to why he uses apostle in this message and why he avoids the term apostle in Matthew 23. And I think it's, it's worthy, worthy of discussion and consideration, but um, I don't know that, that we would actually derive anything useful from, from such pondering. All right, but also in Luke 11, did you pick up on the fact that it's the wisdom of God which said, I will send? The wisdom of God said, I will send. And this is uh, spe- specifically a reference to the second member of Trinity, to God the Son. He is the wisdom of God. And so that harmonizes. That matches with the fact that Jesus himself is personally claiming that he will send. Remember, the church age is the age where Jesus Christ is the head of the church. It's not the Father sending these messengers. It's Christ who heads up these open door ministries, who leads the church. And uh, who is the one that sends uh, in his high priestly prayer? He's going to tell, as the Father has sent me, so I also have sent you. And you understand Christ as the head of the church would be the one sending these messengers that's, uh, that's described. And yet understand, this is not totally revealed until mystery doctrine is unveiled in Ephesians 3, 5, that that. When he's giving these prophecies, when he's talking about sending messengers, and even when he says sending apostles, or even when he says, on this rock I will build my church, right? Matthew 16. The the little previews and the the seed prophecies that are given here are not in any way violating the concept of mystery. He's not unfolding the mystery. He's not explaining what the church is when he says, on this rock I will build my church. He's not in any way violating the Father's purpose in keeping the church a mystery until it's unfolded by the uh, church age apostles and prophets. Hopefully we're clear on that. All right. Then the third thing we want to get with respect to this prophecy And as we look at it, Matthew 23, again, verses 37 through 39, um, there there are some confused uh, commentaries on this section. There are some confused, um, I don't know if you ever read some of these commentaries. They try to shove this forward to Second Advent. And they, and they try to blend uh, messages that relate to suffering. They try to relate those to Armageddon or they try to relate those to Second Advent. But there's huge differences between the tribulation and what's described here. 
All right. In the tribulation, the Jewish people are going to be the ones martyred for their faith. In, in what Christ is describing here in the early days of the church, it's Christian messengers that are warning the Jewish people that they're not being martyred for their faith. They're actually being executed for their wickedness. They're being judged for their role as the persecutors. And you'll notice they are going to be persecuting the, uh, the heavenly messengers. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. So the recipients of this rebuke, the ones he's warning, they themselves are going to be the persecutors. They're going to be the murderers and the persecutors and the, and the afflictors of the, of the messengers and scribes and prophets. So it's, I think it's, it's far too confusing to try to blend this with, with Second Advent. That this generation is the generation of first century A.D. that's going to see the temple destroyed in, uh, in, within a generation of Christ's crucifixion. All right. Now, the third thing. This was, in fact, one of the earliest roles of the church. One of the earliest roles of the church. The church had a number of missions to achieve in its foundation, including, of course, writing the New Testament. There's an important work assignment. Um, laying the foundation for the body of Christ, that is, um, proclaiming the gospel and leading folks to Christ and, and planting lampstands and appointing elders and all the structure of the, of the church age. Uh, the church had a lot of applications, but here's one that often is ignored. The church has a role to warn national Israel. One of the earliest roles of the church was to serve as a warning to national Israel. Um, and in part... This also has to do with um, uh, notifying Old Testament believers that there is now a New Testament. Notifying Old Testament believers that a change of stewardship has taken place and that uh, they need to stop looking for a coming Christ and they need to trust the Christ who came so that they can be converted over from Old Testament saints into church age saints, you understand. Uh, because every Old Testament believer that got saved before the cross doesn't have the Holy Spirit yet. All right, they're not yet church-age saints, and so it's a unique assignment that's only possible in this one uh, transition generation. So one of the earliest roles of the church was to serve as a warning to national Israel that their stewardship had been suspended, and that their city and temple were facing an imminent destruction. An imminent destruction. I tell you, if more. Uh, churches understood this doctrine and taught this principle accurately, then I think we would clear up a lot of confusion as it relates to the temporary gifts, the sign gifts, specifically tongues, and what was the purpose for tongues uh, as given in the Old Testament. All right? And uh, so I think the uh, confusion over Acts chapter 2 and uh, 1 Corinthians 14 would be better understood if they started from Isaiah 28 and took it from there. So what's Jesus saying here? In Matthew 23, he's saying that wrath is coming upon you. Wrath is coming upon you. All these things will come upon this generation. He says, your house is being left to you desolate. He says, from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And what the Lord is telling them here in Matthew 23 is perfectly lined up with what Isaiah said would happen in Isaiah 28. So let's turn back there and take a look at it. Isaiah 28. 
I want you to be able to point your finger to this because um, you may be uh, trying to explain this to a friend or enemy or somebody and uh, you're going to have to point this out yourself. Isaiah 28.11 or you could even back it up to verse 9. To whom would he teach knowledge? And to whom would he interpret the message? Those just weaned from the milk? Those just taken from the breast? For he says, order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line. A little here, a little there. This actually is our methodology. This is our, this is our philosophy of teaching. We can't teach 1,189 chapters in one hour. All right. We can't teach the whole counsel of God's word in a short period of time. It's a lifetime of, of study, a little bit here, a little bit there and building and building and building. And you never stop. You're always learning until such time as as he takes us home. But now notice the prophecy. Indeed, he will speak to this people. And uh, and last week I even went back prior to verse 9 to the verses about how the priests and the prophets are all um, ministering under the influence, right? They're, they're reeling with strong drink. They're confused by wine. They stagger from strong drink. They reel while having visions. They totter while rendering judgment. How sad is that? There's a prophet of the Lord trying to stand up and say, Thus saith the Lord, and, and the room is kind of spinning on him, okay? Because he's so drunk. And the priests and the prophets, it's a sad condition. But keep that image in mind because when this passage gets fulfilled, the Jews that are clueless as to what's going on are going to say, what are they going to say? These men are drunk, right? <laughs> All right. So this just comes alive when you start to put it together and see the connections and how these passages, uh, how the Lord uses these. Now, indeed, he will speak to this people through stammering lips and a foreign tongue. That is outrageous. Okay, that is outrageous from the standpoint of here it's given in, you know, the seventh century B.C. Israel has been the steward since Abraham. Israel is the chosen people. Israel has the truth. What advantage has the Jew? Great in every respect. First of all, they're entrusted with the oracles of God. They should be taking the truth and speaking to the barbarians, the people with stammering lips in a foreign tongue. But it's going to be turned around. It will be Gentile languages spoken to these Jewish people. And that's going to serve as a warning. He will speak to this people through stammering lips in a foreign tongue. He who said to them, here is rest, give rest to the weary, here is repose. But they would not listen. I believe that verse right there is a prophecy of Jesus Christ and his message about coming to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. And they reject the first advent of Jesus Christ. So the word of the Lord to them will be order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there. And the, and the doubling of this is powerful because order on order, think of that as Old Testament, order on order, New Testament, line on line, Old Testament, line on line, New Testament. Why do we have this duplication going on? Because we have a second um, testament being issued. A little here, a little there. And when you can take the Old Testament and take its unfolding and its, and its explanation of the New Testament, you have the whole mind of Christ. But now, that they, here's the purpose clause, may go and stumble backward, be broken, snared, and taken captive. 
broken, snared, and taken captive. All right. It's a warning of national destruction. Their city is going to be destroyed. Their, their uh, temple is going to be destroyed. They're going to be broken, snared, and taken captive. Okay? Now, it is fair to say, if we didn't have Acts 2 and we didn't have 1 Corinthians 14, it is fair to say, in looking at the Isaiah passage, well, um, was this not fulfilled when Babylon destroyed the temple? Okay, that was a national destruction. They were broken, they were snared, they were taken captive. Um, I guess Isaiah 28 was all done when, when Babylon took them to captivity. Okay, And you could make that claim, it'd be a weak one, because you would fail to see the stammering lips and the foreign tongue. You would fail to see the fulfillment of it when the Babylonians took them captive. But fortunately, we, we do have Acts chapter 2. We do have 1 Corinthians 14. We do realize that Isaiah wasn't looking forward to the Babylon captivity. He was looking forward to the Roman destruction of Jerusalem. All right? And that, uh, that becomes undeniable when we get into the New Testament. So let's go to Acts 2 now. And we'll see the languages that are poured forth. The day of Pentecost had come. They were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Okay? Not the whole city. Not the whole world. Okay? It wasn't every believer on the planet that received the Holy Spirit at this moment. Because most believers on the planet were elsewhere and, and did not have the knowledge of the fulfillment of, of the ministry of Jesus Christ. So in other words, every unbeliever on the planet is an Old Testament saint looking forward to the coming Christ, the way they were saved before the cross. Now we start to have them transition into the body of Christ. The coming of the Holy Spirit baptizes them into the, into the body of Christ. And so suddenly there came from heaven a noise, and they were filled, uh, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as a fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues or languages as the Spirit was giving them utterance. This isn't a heavenly language. This isn't a, uh, an unknown babbling. These were recognized foreign languages, which you see here in the following verses. Now, there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. Okay? So now they're Jews, so they're available to receive the warning that Isaiah was going to give the warning to the Jews. Okay? But they are Jews of the, of the diaspora. They're Jews of, that had been scattered since Babylon, really since Assyria. And look where they're all from. Um, we'll have the, the breakdown here in... in uh, Verses 9 and following. But they're from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd became together and they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. None of these were Hebrew speakers. They were all Jews of the diaspora. They, they, they're living in all these lands. They speak the language of these lands. And they were amazed and astonished saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? And this is why it's so amazing. To our own language to which we were born. 
They're not natives of Jerusalem. They're only living here, sojourning here for the, uh, for the feast. The Passover and now Pentecost. Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the districts of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome. All right. So all of these languages, native languages in, in these lands of their birth. Both Jews and proselytes, that is Gentiles that are converted to Old Testament uh, Judaism as we understand it. Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. Speaking of the mighty deeds of God. So this is the foreign tongues, the stammering lips, the application of this here. And they should be warned. They should be warned. Isaiah said they would be warned. And uh, they continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and saying they're full of sweet wine. Now, it's Israel that's full of sweet wine, and they're priests and they're prophets, and uh, they're under judgment. Their stewardship has already been revoked. This is the day that the church begins. Israel is no longer the steward. And now Jewish people are hearing the works of God in Gentile languages, just like Isaiah said was going to happen. Now, uh, as we glance down to verses 36 and through 41, we've got some other. See, what is it that they're communicating here? What is the content of this message? You know, they're hearing the mighty deeds of God, like what? Noah's Ark, Daniel in the lion's den. What are they hearing? They're hearing about Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And... Um, Verse 36, therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, why is it that Peter is addressing the house of Israel? The same reason Isaiah addressed him, the same reason Jesus addressed him. What did Jesus say? Your house is being left to you desolate. What did Isaiah say? When you hear the stammering lips in the foreign tongue, you know you'll be broken backward, you'll stumble backwards broken and taken captive. And now here's Peter addressing the house of Israel. You crucified the Christ. God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Okay. Now, this is where we've got to be careful because there's too much confusion. People think that, oh, these are all just you know, unbelievers. This is, a, this is a Philippian jailer. What must I do to be saved? That's not the question. That's not the question. If these men get struck by lightning right now. They're going to die as believers. Okay? I should have also pointed out the... Um, Right at the very beginning, these devout men. In verse 5, that term devout men is never used of an unbeliever. Ever. These are believers. These are believers that are so obedient to their Scriptures that they travel these distances to come down their pilgrimage. Alright? If they were unbelievers, they wouldn't have come from Rome and Phrygia and all these other places. But they are Old Testament believers. And uh, they need to know that uh, their stewardship is revoked as Israel. They need to be brought into the church. 
this Christ whom you crucified. All right? Now, brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent. Okay? If you try to turn that into a salvation message, you're violating all these other salvation messages that say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Repent. Have a change of thinking with respect to no longer being an Old Testament believer, looking forward to a coming Christ. Change your thinking. The Christ has come and we crucified Him. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Now this is uh, goes back to the purpose for John the Baptist and his baptism. How Israel was coming to be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins, identifying with Christ as their king, humbling themselves for the coming kingdom, right? That was when John the Baptist was baptizing. Well, the kingdom is no longer at hand. But the Jewish people, the believers, still have to identify with Christ as their king. And notice, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Repent and identify with Jesus as the Christ. And you will be ushered into the body of Christ. Baptized into union with, the, with brothers and sisters in Christ. In other words, you will cross over from being an Old Testament saint to a church age saint. For the promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, as many as the Lord God will call to Himself. But it's only this generation, you and your children, that is, these that are alive during the transition from Israel to the church. And with many other words, He solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Why is this generation so significant? Because if they don't identify with the body of Christ and they aren't ushered into the church and they don't flee Jerusalem, in other words, if they continue to identify with Jerusalem as Jews, they're in for some suffering coming up. That's what national Israel is being warned of. So then, those who had received His Word were baptized and that day, and this is a fascinating expression, it doesn't mean that they received eternal life, there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And it's an interesting expression. It's used a few times here in the early chapters of Acts. Added that day about 3,000 souls. And uh, crossing over from Old Testament status to church age status. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So we see it here. One of the earliest roles of the church to serve as a warning to national Israel. To have Old Testament believers become church age believers. And to warn the Jews of the coming destruction of Jerusalem. Now finally, 1 Corinthians 14. Let's get into our New Testament doctrine as it relates to the temporary gifts. 1 Corinthians 14. And uh, I'm just giving you one message on this today, but we'll have more. I mean, there is more, a ton of this already on the website from uh, basic doctrinal studies when we taught charismatology. Likewise, in 1 Corinthians, when we taught 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and 14. Um, understand, even before chapter 14, in chapter 13, in verse 8, it says tongues will cease. 
Love never fails, but if there are gifts of the prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. Okay? And the difference between done away and cease is important. And uh, if you just want to, I'm going real fast right now, but just looking at verse 8, you see prophecy, you see tongues, and you see knowledge. And it's like a sandwich. Prophecy comes first, word of knowledge comes last, and in between is tongues. And the first one and the third one are done away. The middle one ceases. And that's important. Okay? The done away will be described uh, here. When the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. And that's a whole realm of doctrine all on its own. Is how is the partial give way to the perfect? And how do the temporary gifts, how are they done away? And those, those sign gifts that are done away with the, with the coming of the perfect. But tongues is different. Tongues is not done away. With the coming of the perfect. Tongues ceases. When does it cease? Chapter 13 doesn't tell us. So we turn to chapter 14 and we see the development on tongues. Okay. In uh, 13 we see the end of prophecy and knowledge. But in 14 we see the end of tongues. So it says in 1 Corinthians 14.20 Brethren do not be children in your thinking. Yet in evil be infants. But in your thinking be mature. In the law... It is written by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people. And even so, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. All right. Sound familiar? It's the Isaiah 28 passage we read just a little bit ago. And so we, this, is, this is Scripture now giving us the interpretation of that Isaiah 28 passage. It was not fulfilled when Babylon destroyed the temple in the, in the 6th century B.C. It is applied when the Romans are destroying the temple and the city in the first century A.D. Notice now. So then tongues are for a sign. Why do we have the gift of tongues? This verse tells us it's a sign. Not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. Prophecy is not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. And then what gets unfolded here? If the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues and the ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? Interesting phrase. The ungifted men or the unbelievers. <laughs> now, if I use that today in 2011, it wouldn't make any sense because the ungifted are unbelievers and every believer has a gift. And so if I want to talk about unbelievers, I could talk about unbelievers, or I could talk about the ungifted, and I'd be talking about the same unbelievers, right? But here there's a difference. You have unbelievers, of course, but who are the ungifted? If they're not unbelievers, who are the ungifted? They're the Old Testament believers that have not yet been brought into the New Testament understanding of the work of Christ and the, and the cross. So they're, they're saved, but they're still ungifted. They're ungifted believers because they're Old Testament believers. And so one of the roles in the early church was you had to deal with unbelievers who weren't saved at all and ungifted believers who were saved before the cross looking forward to the coming Christ. You've got to deal with both groups. See, thankfully, today we don't have to worry about unbelievers. There's no one left on planet Earth today that got saved before the cross. We don't have to worry about that group. 
but boy, all throughout the book of Acts, all throughout the New Testament, you've got to understand, there are still these, these folks, and you've got to minister to them. And uh, prophecy is for the believers, and tongues are for the unbelievers, and it's a warning. All right. So tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to the unbelievers. And what was the warning about in Isaiah 28? The unbelievers. They would not believe. Okay? To whom would the Lord give instruction? So, tying these things together, we understand one of the earliest roles of the church was to serve as a warning to national Israel that their stewardship had been suspended and that their city and temple were facing an imminent destruction. Fourthly, the 70 A.D. destruction of Jerusalem was cumulative and compound divine discipline. Cumulative and compound divine discipline for every Old Testament martyr. For all Old Testament martyrs, that is, Abel to Zechariah. And of course, for the ultimate martyr, Jesus Christ. Remember... Um, in uh, Genesis, Genesis chapter 4, Cain murders Abel. And the Lord goes looking for Cain to uh, give him a confession opportunity here. And what was the activity of Abel's blood? Do you remember? It was crying out. That's right. And so uh, the voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Now, there's a couple of things that have to happen, of course. The sin has to be paid for, but then, which is one element. But also the vengeance has to be applied. That's another element. But then wrath poured out is another element. Okay. All of these that pertain to consequences for sin and, and sinful activity. And yet, yeah, does God pour out his wrath on Cain? He doesn't. What does he do? He actually shows mercy to Cain, doesn't he? He gives Cain a mark for Cain's protection. He allows Cain to flee. You know, it's even, you know, possibility that Cain could even get saved later on. Who knows? But he does not pour out judgment for this shed blood. It's deferred. It's deferred until when? Well, until this. All the blood from Abel to Zechariah. In Matthew 23, 35, it says all the blood. And this, uh, the, this is the, uh, the interesting thing of it. When God, uh, God will, when a nation is beset with bloodshed, he will, there will be discipline upon that nation. Okay? And the, in particular, the bloodshed for martyrdom. And here it's all been saved up in the whole Old Testament time frame. There's other things, you know, other bloodshed that's not associated with martyrdom. It's just general all-purpose murder and abortion and um, child sacrifice. And I mean, there's all kinds of bloodshed. But, uh, and, and God will discipline a, a nation for that because the land is defiled. Blood defiles the land. But the particular blood of a martyr is a, is a unique standard of divine discipline upon a nation. And uh, here we find out that until the coming of Christ, God actually withheld that wrath. He withheld that wrath. 
so that upon you may fall the guilt, the expiation, the wrath, the, the um, divine judgment, the divine temporal judgment of all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. You want the story on that? It's 2 Chronicles 24. All right. Take a quick peek ahead. There's the ultimate martyr, Jesus Christ, in Matthew 27. Some of the scariest, one of the scariest verses you'll find in all the Bible is Matthew 27, 25. And Pilate had done everything he could to try to release Christ. And, uh, you know, he sent him to Herod and then got him back and then tried to release Barabbas and that didn't work. And he tried this, tried that. And then Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting. He took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourself. See, to put a righteous man to death leaves him a subject to divine wrath for this blood. Washes his hands. Said, I don't want this blood. And the people said, oh, this is horrible. His blood shall be on us and on our children. In that arrogance, willful defiance, satanic opposition. And so what we're going to see here in the 7080 destruction, cumulative and compound divine discipline for all Old Testament martyrs, including the ultimate martyr, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All right. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. The fifth and final thing to get out of this prophecy. This generation must be recognized in the immediate context. And we've done a fairly good job, I think. You understand it's these Pharisees, it's this, it's this generation on earth at this time in 33 A.D. that's crucifying the Christ. However, we're going to see this phrase again in the Olivet Discourse. And we cannot confuse the two. This generation must be recognized in the immediate context and must not be confused with the term this generation that will be studied in the Mount Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24:34. It's a different generation because it's a different context. And when we study Mount Olivet Discourse, we see that the, the application there is not the life of Christ in the first century, but it's looking forward to when He returns and it's tribulational in its application. And it refers to the tribulational generation. The immediacy of their judgment. And if we do ourselves a, a big favor, we'll understand that now and we won't fall for the trap that people just conclude that, oh, well, this generation in Matthew 24 has to be the same as this generation in Matthew 23. doesn't have to be. And in fact, when the context is entirely different, it cannot be the same. You know, would we assume it's the same as this generation in, in Deuteronomy when Moses is speaking? No. The context of every passage tells you what this generation is dealing with. So um, don't fall for that. The people that try to say that, you know, 
the rapture happened in the first century or second advent happened in the first century or, uh, you know, the, there is no future tribulation. Basically, the preterist view that says that the book of Revelation is over with because 6 through 19 was all, you know, shoved into into 70 A.D. OK, it's horrible. So don't fall for that. We'll, we'll detail it more when we get to Matthew 24 and we study this generation in the Olivet Discourse. All right. Now the lament. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together. And since I'm God and I have absolute sovereignty, I get everything I want. It's not what it says. God wants and man doesn't want. It says you are unwilling. And so we have the verb of fellow to will or to desire. And we have the negative of that with what they don't desire. And so if God desires something and man doesn't desire something, what happens? What, what works out? What wins? Does sovereignty win or does volition win? And do we force ourselves into an either or conundrum? Or is there a better way of looking at it? When free will is exercised, it doesn't mean that sovereignty loses. Because it was by sovereignty that man was given free will in the first place. Okay? People overlook that. What are we dealing with? So point B now. The last point for this study, although there are three subpoints. The lament is over Israel's national rejection of their Messiah King. The lament is over Israel's national rejection of their Messiah King. There were individual believers within Israel, of course. Dozens, hundreds, possibly thousands. Okay, we don't know. There were individual believers who placed their faith in Christ, received eternal life. Yes. But as a nation, they rejected their king. Their leaders, their population, by and large, rejected their king. And so there's the lament. And now he's weeping. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. The sovereignty of God is always achieved. Yet the volition of man is always respected. The sovereignty of God is always achieved. Yet the volition of man is always respected. Critical that we understand we cannot allow this verse to say that God's sovereignty was thwarted. Understand, in his foreknowledge, he had full recognition that Israel was going to reject their king in 33 AD. And full knowledge that a church age would intervene. And full knowledge that a second advent would be necessary. And full knowledge that Israel will not accept their king until they go through the great tribulation of Israel. That's what's going to take to humble them. They will look upon him whom they pierced. That's what it's going to take for Israel to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, to accept their king. And he knows all that. So this is not a thwarting of sovereignty. Not at all. Sovereignty is always achieved. In fact, it's his sovereignty that demands that the acceptance of Christ be freely given and freely received. The sovereignty of God that demands that those who reject His offer are perishing. He does not desire for any to perish. But clearly, those who reject His offer do perish. So if you have a definition of sovereignty that says 
um, if he wants it, he gets it. That's not sovereignty. Because he may want to gather Jerusalem together, but there are other things he also wants. He wants Jerusalem to accept his son. He wants that too, and that's not happening at this time either. He wants the love of his son to be like his love for the son, voluntarily. Nothing can be under compulsion. We're going to see this in our doctrine of grace giving in, in 2 Corinthians. Cannot be grudgingly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. That's what he wants. Volitional acceptance of his grace offer. The desolate house. The desolate house describes Israel's suspended stewardship. It's not a destroyed house. It's a desolate house. There's a difference. It's a house that is vacated. It's a throne that's vacated. But nonetheless, it is a throne that still has valid promises because they're eternal promises. The desolate house describes Israel's suspended stewardship. It has a future. But in the meantime, other stewards will serve the Father's plan. Notice, it doesn't say your house is being destroyed. Your house is being left to you. You still have it. It's being left to you. It's still your possession. It's still your future. It's still your destiny. It's still yours. But, for the time being, you have a desolate house. It's not being taken away. It's not being destroyed. It's not being given to another. It has a future, but in the meantime, other stewards will serve the Father's plan. And we'll deal with this in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Romans 9, 10, and 11. And can I teach this in five minutes? <laughs> well, whatever I can't get through in five minutes, we got it coming up in Romans, right? So just get a preview here and, and uh, stay tuned for more detail. Romans 9, 24 through 26. You'll notice even us whom he also called, not from among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. There's going to be a new stewardship. And it's not just going to be Jews. It's going to be Jews and Gentiles together in one body. As he also says in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people, my people, and her who is not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where there was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Interestingly enough, this goes all the way back to Hosea. And uh, Hosea didn't have a clue about the mystery of the church, but that's what he was talking about. And Paul here makes it clear. A new stewardship has been brought into existence. See, mystery doctrine not only reveals all new things, but also goes back to some things that were previously unclear and unfolds those as well. See, nobody knew out of Egypt I will call my son was a prophecy. Because as they were reading Hosea, it said out of Egypt I have called my son. They thought it was history. And then Jesus is born and Matthew reveals this also prophecy. It's a beautiful way that God uh, unveils, veil, first veils and then unveils His plan from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Over to Romans 11. I say then, God has not rejected His people, has He? Man never be. He's not done with Israel. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew understand how critical that is? Everybody that says, oh, well, Israel was faithless, so God replaced him with a church. 
Well, that's idiotic. Yes, Israel was faith was faithless, but God foreknew that Israel was going to be faithless. And he called them as, as his people anyway. See, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And so it goes on. There is still a future for Israel according to his gracious choice, a remnant. And when the church is complete, Israel will be restored to their stewardship. Verses 25 through 27. I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. It's a finite situation. It's a finite situation. But the Deliverer will come from Zion. All Israel will be saved. All right. So, the desolate house describes Israel's suspended stewardship. Your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until that desolate house isn't going to remain forever. You will see me again. The desolate house will be restored. It's going to be exalted. It's going to be glorified. But it will be at second advent when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The second advent of Jesus Christ will not take place until the nation of Israel repents and accepts the king they crucified. The nation of Israel must repent and accept the king they crucified. And it's going to take tribulation to do it. Zechariah 12.10. Zechariah 12.10. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Zechariah 12.10. And... Uh, you got destruction of Jerusalem and all the nations that are gathered around Jerusalem. And um, then he says in verse 10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. Isn't that powerful? Four centuries before the Christ is pierced. They will look upon me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for the only begotten son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day, there will be great mourning in Jerusalem. Anyway, but what's it going to lead to? It's going to lead to the open fountains. It's going to lead to millennial blessings. It's going to lead to all the beautiful things you see here at the later parts of Zechariah. Israel must repent and accept the king they crucified. That day will come. But it won't come until the church is gone. It won't come until their stewardship is returned. It won't come until 144,000 faithful evangelists get saved and start working during the time of maximum martyrdom on planet earth. It's going to be something else, of course, what we call the time of Jacob's trouble, the great tribulation of Israel. Thank you, Father, for this day, for the truth you provided. Uh, some of it can be a bit overwhelming, Father. There's a whole lot going on. But Jesus Christ is uh, faithfully warning. And, uh, and there will be other apostles and prophets that will faithfully warn during the time from 33 to 70. And, uh, and I just thank you that for uh, the recognition of who we are, where we are, how your plan unfolds, and the delight we have to study to show ourselves approved. Thank you, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.